welcome to our quest for cardboard. We're back! We're back. A lot happened past two years. And we got married. We got a dog. Our second. Our second dog, it's true. The world fell into turmoil. That too. <laughs> <laughs> it's given us a lot of time to play uh, two games, or two player games rather. So that's that's a positive. And uh, past month or so, we've been talking about uh, what we want out of this podcast, and we've changed some of it up a little bit. Before we talked briefly about doing like a joust kind of scenario, where we would pit one game against the other, and we'd play them a lot in a certain span of time and see which one came out on top. With a new shift, we're just we're just doing that. We're not going to have a featured game or any of the other stuff we were doing before. We're just going to play two games a lot and compare them. Uh, usually around, we'll base them around some common theme or mechanic and talk about them really in depth. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the simplified version to really just hash out what we think about these games that we really like. Uh, being a couple of mirrors, we had to come up with a rubric for everything, of course. But it is a nice way to think about games and compare them. Yeah, it helps me think about what do I really like in a game? Why is this my favorite game? Things like that. Yeah, yeah, we're really trying to ask, like, or answer, when we're looking at games, like, what, what makes it great? What, what makes this mechanic great in a game? What makes it really have this, like, makes this mechanic shine? And now we're only focusing on two-player games. That's true. Our jousting is really just looking at two players. It's another thing that I think prevented us from doing it in the past, is how can we compare a five-player game of uh, Champions of Midgard to a two-player game of Warhammer Underworlds. And now we've had so much time to play two-player games. Sure do. Yeah. We've got a lot to say about them. Boy, do we. <laughs> well, let's jump into the games we played recently. One we've just started playing quite a bit recently is Vampire the Masquerade Heritage. Now, I kickstarted this definitely over a year ago, and I finally received it around Christmas and was really excited to get it to the table. This game was designed by Babis Genios. I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong. It's a card drafting game where you're a vampire siring people into your bloodline. Now you can play it as just a one-shot game or in a campaign over about 600 years. And we're playing it as a campaign. I've been finding that the, the games are pretty short in themselves, but the campaign's going to take a really long time to get through. <laughs> yeah, the, the games themselves don't take that long. You're, you're drafting 10 vampires into your bloodline. And it doesn't really matter where they go in the bloodline for, for most for the most part. Some edge cases where a certain ability triggers on whether they're a sire or a fledgling, yada yada, other keywords. For the most part, it doesn't matter when you draft them and put them into your uh, into your bloodline. Just looking at their different attributes and how they affect the battlefields that you're playing over, uh, which is just kind of different ways to score points. The game overall is very it's very simple. It's quick, but it has enough that you don't feel Board in 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. Now the campaign is 21 plays of the game, which is a little daunting. I'm excited to play the later years, the later eras, because we're in the 1300s right now, and the 1400s seem very similar to me. I didn't study that time period, so I'm ready to get into the 1800s, 1900s. Our group is excited to see like what the vampires what the people from the 1970s look like is Jimi hendrix a character or maybe stevie nicks i think that would be fun would be fun yeah we the only famous person we've recognized so far is dante alighieri mm -hmm. so it'd be cool to see if there are other famous people in there and it's really fun when you get to elevate the vampires actually you're you're turning them into a vampire when you flip them yeah and on the other side of the card, it's all in full color, really vibrant. And sometimes the vampires are in different poses. Sometimes they have blood dripping down their face <laughs> or something gory is happening. There's like they're drinking pose poison. <laughs> yeah. They got like a heart in their hand or something. Something bloody. Yeah. And yeah. I like seeing that. I like that little surprise. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. I like what they did with the artwork. It can be really cool to see this. Like Not all of them. Are, uh, are that different. Unfortunate. Fun to see their vampiric transformation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another game we've been playing lately is Etherfields. We did not finish Etherfields. And this is a, a game by 
uh, Michelle Orach, and it came out this past year, 2020. It was also a Kickstarter. You know, big Kickstarter by Awakened Realms. Big minis-filled narratives-driven game. Speaking of the minis, I think the minis were one of the reasons why I wanted to play this game, but then I'm finding that they don't really have anything to do with the story. Or, like, not all of them do? Yeah, I don't know if we just didn't get to any of them. But usually it was just, like, use four shapeshifter animals or four shapeshifter humans, and they looked vaguely human. And it didn't really matter which minis were out. Yeah, like, in the story, it's this one specific thing, like a dog. And we only have one dog-looking figure, and then the rest are just stand-ins for other dogs, you know? Right, yeah, I would just say, like, use the shapeshifter animals. And one of them looks vaguely dog-like, but the others don't. I think the game was really at its best when it had you solving a puzzle within the 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 dreamscape. There's, like, a dreamscape, and then there's a slumber bit where you just kind of grinded to get to the dreamscape. But the dreamscape was was cool when it had a puzzle to solve within it. Otherwise, you were kind of just, oh, look, I'm, I have these three green. I can activate this thing that needs you to have three green. I would almost rather just read a Choose Your Own Adventure story than to have to go through and play out this, I have three green and I have two yellow so I can move there. All right, let's read what interacting with that does. Yeah, I like the part, I think it's the dream world. As opposed to the dreamscape? I get them confused. The dreamscape is the fun one. The dream world is where you're moving around a map and you have to like grind to get these two keys so that you can go back to the dreamscape. Yeah, I like the dreamscape with the story. Yeah, the dreamscape is, is really shine for me. The uh, Like I said, when, it was, when there was a puzzle to solve, it was great. Otherwise, it was the mechanics were fine, but I, know I would rather read just a choose your own adventure story at some point. Same, I agree. Very thematic in this weird dream world. Just gonna click on all cylinders for me. <laughs> we'll probably bring it back out um, to play some more games in the future, but I think for now I'm happy that we're we're playing other games. We've also been playing Battlecon quite a bit. Game with the the giant boxes to hold all things Battlecon. It's been really nice because game the biggest thing that it came with, and I think the thing that really helps facilitate getting played out the most, was that each character comes in a little a box and it has all their cards, all their tokens. So you just need to pull out this box and you're ready to go. Yeah, that's really changed my view of the game. Yeah. Now I can see all of the different characters, their different levels. I can read about the character on the back of the box and just really make a decision what I want to play in that game. Because before, I just didn't know what I was choosing didn't really have an interest, and now I I have so many options, and it's so organized and neat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it really is. And it just makes it really easy to choose someone, uh, choose a fighter, and then get to the table. It's one of my top games. And so I was happy to get this. The new fighters are really fun to play. I played the, the Battleship one. She's a, a, a mechanic on a steamship, a flying ship bombards the, the battlefield throughout the, the, the game, and that's that's her, her unique ability revolves around that. It's been nice getting that out to the table more often, because there's so many characters, and they all play uh, differently enough that they, they all feel like maybe you uh, like they're that unique character. It really feels like you're playing the character with, a, with an airship, or you're playing the character that gives it a shadow to assassinate people. Uh, and I should say this was uh, published by Level 99 Games. Designed by D. Brad Talton. And I need to practice more because you always kick my butt. <laughs> Another game we've been playing recently is Warhammer Underworlds, which is designed by David Sanders. So this is another two-player skirmish game. In this, you choose a faction that has accompanying miniatures, cards, and abilities, trying to earn points by either killing your opponents or scoring objective cards. I like playing the different factions. Um, they're all very unique, and I like their different abilities for each of the different characters in the factions, mm-hmm. the little guys. Yeah. Recently, I've been playing the Rat People, or the Skaven, a lot. I just like how sneaky and stabby they are. They use their tails to like hold on to a knife or a sword, and they just stabby stabby people. They sneak around, and I like it. Yeah, they do. They totally do. 
I've been playing, um, I forget what their, what their faction's called, but they're followers of Cinch. I think that's how it's pronounced. Not super into the Warhammer lore, but it's uh, one of the Chaos Gods. A lot to do with magic. And so these are all vaguely bird-like magic casters. And that's been that's been fun. There's different different dice for casting magic. Oh, and there's this one little guy that when you <laughs> yeah. kill him, he comes back. Yeah, that one's I obnoxious. Yeah, you summon a little familiar, little bird familiar, and when he's when he, when you take him out, but then it comes back as a flame guy. And they're 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 not neither one is particularly strong. They're both fairly weak characters, but it's a, a whole new character. Then it's yeah, it's an interesting part of their their faction. The thing I really appreciate about Warhammer Underworld is not just a kind of a free-for-all whoever kills the other side first wins. The objective cards are very important for the for the game. And it's over after three rounds. No matter who's left standing, no matter what's going on, it's over in three rounds. Get your points in before then. Yeah, and I've been finding when we've been playing recently, we've just been neck and neck until somebody happens to pull ahead. Whether mm-hmm. that's because they they got to kill one or two people or they just received a three point objective so it's exciting one person's not a clear winner from the beginning and you use dice and i always like a game with dice i like that luck thrown in there that little risk i don't i don't think you like rolling dice as much as i do yeah, i mean i think in this game it's it's a little different because it is kind of just, you, you you're rolling the dice uh, the way the dice are are configured it's the odds are different depending on who's attacking and who's defending there's other things to consider when the dice fall that's just that's sometimes that's how they fall i don't find it as bothersome with this game as i might in some other games because it's it's another fairly quick game play because you're not trying to just murder each other to death it's relatively quick. I don't mind that the dice can you know, tell us tell their own story. This week for our Joust competitors in one quarter, <laughs> Wing. Oh no, Ian's in. We've got a lot of content for Ian's in. It's heavy. It's Wing, fifty pounds of cardboard. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, one of one of the games is Ian's in, and the other one is Spirit Island. This week we're doing cooperative games. So we came up with our own rubric, uh, what it means to be, to really have the cooperative definition in it. We each went to separate rooms and we scored <laughs> both games. We did. And now we are going to fight for our winner. <laughs> our winner's going to fight for themselves, actually, because they're fighting. <laughs> they're fighting. <laughs> they already fought for two weeks. So Aeon's End, uh, designed by Kevin Riley and Nick Little, it was produced by Action Phase Games. All the way back in 2016. <laughs> uh, it's a deck builder. It's set in this futuristic apocalypse. These entities known as the Nameless have invaded our reality. They have this weird breach magic, and they've kind of s- almost snuffed out humanity entirely, except for what's remaining in Gravehold. And now the story has progressed quite a, quite a bit since then. There's been, off the top of my head, I think five different uh, expansions, including the Legacy. A lot has happened as far as the story's going. They've, they've kept the score going in each one. In, this, in the game, you're playing as a Breach Mage who uses this magic of the Nameless against them, sling spells at a powerful nemesis until you hopefully beat them. And in the other corner, we have Spirit Island, which was designed by R. Eric Roos, produced by Greater Than Games in 2017. In this game, you're playing as Spirits. You're spreading your influence during this game to frighten or destroy the settlers who are invading your island. Usually games that you play are settling and you're building up your cities and you're colonizing. This Set- is the opposite. Like a is a yeah. prime example. But yeah, you're uh, unsettling the tonic. <laughs> <laughs> so the way we've identified what makes a good cooperative game, we've looked at three different traits. Uh, one is coordination. How closely do players need to coordinate to win? One being you don't really need to coordinate. You just kind of do your thing and eventually you'll probably work out well. On the other end, you know, you really need to coordinate very closely with your players. Uh, it creates you know, this tense situation where if you're not uh, working together, you're kind of falling apart. The second one is uh, ideally a cooperative game that 
uh, avoids quarterbacking, which is kind of this term that people have used for a game where someone can sit down and say, okay, listen, you do this, you do that, you do this, let's see what happens. Okay, great, you do that, you do this, you do that. So one person could really dictate the whole game. To some extent, that's that's really on a personal level. It's up to the individual to not just not quarterback for games where it's uh, where you're able to do so. There is something to be said for games where it is true cooperative and not kind of this like well, solo cooperative. That's something I really try to avoid with cooperative games because we play them a lot with one mm-hmm. of our friends. It's really easy for me to just sit back and just let somebody take over if that's what they're trying to do. I'm just like, okay, you take over. You do you. You don't need my help. I get yeah. really sassy. <laughs> yeah, you do. You do. <laughs> I, I want to feel like I'm a part of the game and that I'm playing an important role. So mm-hmm. this is really important to me. Third one is uh, what we're calling the luck factor. And this isn't just randomness. There's... In a good cooperative game, there's going to be some random elements. That's what makes it intriguing. That's what makes it not just a puzzle that you're coming back to again and again. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with a good puzzle, but generally, I don't want to spend 60 bucks for a puzzle. <laughs> so, you know, on one end, there are games where you're kind of, you know, you're sitting in a group and you're just rolling dice and seeing what happens. And on the other end, there are, you know, the random elements are, are present. They often introduce challenges to your objectives. Players have a lot of uh, say in what the outcome is like. And they have mitigation techniques, can plan ahead and try to anticipate these challenges that might come up, even if they don't know exactly what's going to happen. Those are three qualities that we've identified as being quintessential cooperative game qualities. So we also have a couple of characteristics where we just wanted to award a point here and there. Those are artwork, theme, and play length. But we really wanted to help those games out that, you know, if it's a great game, but it has artwork that is really memorable, <laughs> that we really like, then we get an extra point. Yeah, there's a point. <laughs> so let's jump right into it. Coordination. Emily, what, what were your thoughts? So for Aeon's End, I think coordination, it's really required. For instance, deciding which minions to focus on, who can commit either to the purple card. I forget what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> well, the purple are actions. The power card is the yellow. Those are what you're, you're committing either to. Yeah, to that one. <laughs> Coordinating that, it's really necessary to make sure that you win. What do you think? Totally agree. I mean, from the get-go, you typically, at least for the harder nemeses or on any harder difficulty, you want to make sure that at least one mage is doing like a big money strategy. That they they've got money, they can afford big spells at the end, and they can hopefully do other kind of support things like opening bre- focusing breaches and paying for those really important power cards. They always have a high cost. It seems to be just a bit above the curve of what you normally would have. Yeah, and they have terrible consequences. Yeah, terrible consequences. Usually, yeah, you gotta take care of that. <laughs> you do, and then you generally the rest are some combination of spell sling and damage deal and type uh so yeah i think coordination is really important for the game and i i mean it's tough to for both of these games because it's like a lower difficulty with an easier boss you don't need as much right or maybe you just have really good mages in a good market and you don't need to talk about these things or we've played this game for five years we don't always need to vocalize the coordination but we are coordinating I mean, I'm always looking at what you're doing and trying to play off of that, even if we don't say what's going on. Right. Same with Spirit Island, when we, we talk about that more, it's difficult to compare an easier mode with the harder modes. And Spirit Island, there's a big difficulty gradients. Base game is difficult by itself, but it, it keeps going up. Oh, yeah. I think coordination is, is key, not just because of the difficulty, because of the, the game style just prompts this coordination from players. Yeah. And yeah. Oh, I thought you were talking about Spirit Island. Well, speaking of which, I think it's the same Spirit <laughs> Island. <laughs> I agree. That's why I got confused because I was like, yeah, both. Heavy coordination. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I, I put them both at a five. Same. Yeah, they, yes. you really do need to coordinate, particularly for those harder difficulties. Spirit Island can really snowball out of, out of control if you're not on top of it from the beginning. Not, I mean, it doesn't have to, but it can. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can there is like this weird power curves and power spirit island depending on which spirit you're playing 
notice some are really good at the beginning, some are good later, some kind of go up and down. You really do need to coordinate with the other players so that your powers are working in tandem to stop those pesky sellers. Yeah, I think what what you said about snowballing really resonates with me, because if you're off doing your own thing, and then you're not taking care of this one land over there because you think the other person's going to, and (laughs) neither of you are paying attention to it, it's no. going to snowball out of control. Or not even that neither of you are paying attention to it, but you started down this path and now neither of you are able to get there in, in a timely manner to, to stop whatever effects are happening. I've also seen where we both start at like the opposite ends of the <laughs> boards and then we just can't get to each other. Depending on the, the spirits and the board set up, that can, that can happen. You know? Yeah, so I think even coordinating from... Well, I was going to say coordinating from the very beginning... But you can't always, you don't always have a choice where you're placing your power, your presence, excuse me, Yeah. in the beginning of the game. That's true. But you could, you could set up the, the map in different ways. You don't have to set it up long or short ends against each other if you're both starting on the, on like the opposite coast. Might not be a great idea. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. But yeah, you don't, you don't get a choice often where you put your starting presence or you have limited choice. Now what about avoiding quarterbacking what do you think for Aeon's end i think that's a good job relatively good job most because it's got this deck building component so everyone has their own hand they've got their own entire deck for someone to try and quarterback it they really have to memorize what everyone else's deck is going to be now to some extent i would say that it's possible because once you start like getting into the flow of the game it does kind of cycle around because you're never shuffling anything. So you're like, is this the turn where you're playing all your spells or is it? Or is that next time where you have this five damage? Mm-hmm. Now, it's still not really, I don't know if it's quarterbacking at that point. If you're like, when, when is your big spell hand? Right. I had trouble judging this because yeah. it's hard to tell when you're micromanaging versus just trying to coordinate, you know, yeah. trying to be helpful and trying to plan your own stuff. I'm very sensitive when it comes to quarterbacking, <laughs> so I scored this a little lower because mm-hmm. I have experienced, from my perspective, a little micromanaging with Aeon's What are you trying to, try to say, Emily? Well, Mike, <laughs> let me tell you something. It's all coming out now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree with you that this game does a good job at avoiding this because you have a lot to take into account and plan by yourself. Everybody has their own hand and depth mm-hmm. to worry about. Yeah. But micromanaging, quarterbacking, whatever you call it, I think it's still possible. <laughs> um, you can still be like familiar with people's cards, like you said, and telling people what minion to choose. When you're dealing damage. Yeah, sure. exactly. Sure. Those things, I think, are easy to micromanage. And even like when somebody's going to buy a card... Like, oh, I think this one's going to work better for you. I don't think you do that, but I think it's possible. Well, isn't, isn't that possible in Spirit Islands? Isn't, I mean, you can say, like, well, why don't you deal the damage to these invaders instead of those invaders or sellers and their invaders? See, here's the thing. Okay. Because there is way too much more to keep track of in Spirit Island, especially... Mm-hmm. I think so, especially okay. the expansions that we've been getting. When you add on a an adversary, and when you add on like a scenario, is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah, adversaries and scenarios. There's just so much to keep track of. I think it would be really difficult for somebody to micromanage another player and remember everything that they're able to do, determine when they're going to go fast, when they're going to go slow. It's just a lot. I think it's more to keep track of than Aeon's End. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm, I'm zooming in just on, you said you can say, well, why are you dealing damage there? Deal damage here. And I think both games have that element. You, know, you see what your your other spirit, your spirit companions can do. And the play is all simultaneous. In Spirit Island 2, there's no real turn structure aside from the phases. Yeah. Um, so that does help. I think that cuts down on like... I agree. Um, you really have to s- slow the game down. But I think both games kind of have this similar opportunity for someone to step in and be like, okay, so you played that, well, why don't we do this, this, and this then, since we've all played this. Mm-hmm. So I think it's possible at that level, or at that point in each game, for some this amount of quarterbacking. So what did you score, then? Okay. Uh, I did actually score a quarterback, lower. What? Yeah. 
just just a, a bit, just because I think the simultaneous play in Spirit Island is a big factor. With Battlecon and Spirit Island, those are the games where I need to know my stuff, mm. and I take more time to learn what I'm doing. With Aeon's End, I know I can figure things out in the meantime. There's less to figure out in my sure. mind. There's an open market, so I think that yeah. can lend itself to quarterbacking, because you can say, like, well, you have five ether. Why don't you do this and then that? I don't even read all the cards ahead of time when we start playing in the market. What I do just you do it. <laughs> I just look at how what kind of, what can I buy, and then I read those cards in the moment. Uh, now you know. Good to know. Well, I feel like your uh, <laughs> your thoughts are no longer not. So I scored Aeon's End at a 4, uh-huh. and Spirit Island at a 5. Same. That's also what I did, for the you know, reasons we talked about. <laughs> so luck, this was also difficult for me. It was a tough one, yeah. Yeah, for Aeon's End, I just had to decide. I just had to make a decision. Okay. And I decided that... Are you prepared to defend your decision? Yes. Okay. So... I decided that luck plays a semi-significant role in Aeon's End Mm. because of the turn order deck. Because you can't really manipulate the turn order deck as much as I would want to. Sometimes you're able to, but a lot of the time, some of the times it would just come down to the turn order where we're screwed or we're not screwed. And we're constantly looking to see, okay, who's going next? Who's going next? Are we able to do it, you know, do really well this round? So it just came down to that for me. I think it also comes down to the luck of the draw sometimes with the... You know for your deck. Nemesis deck. Oh. (laughs) Because there were times when we just got a really difficult card up at the top of that level. And then some... Then you would be like, oh, screw this. This is too difficult. (laughs) This wouldn't happen often, listeners. I promise you. (laughs) (laughs) We usually go through it in every shuffle deck. Yeah. Or sometimes I would make the deck wrong to begin with. Oh, yeah. Like flip over level three on the second turn. Like, oh. I think that's happened more so. That's a little too tough. (laughs) Yeah. That's happened more often than you just deciding this is too hard. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that, that's that's what I think about that. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, and, and some of that is the way we set up the game, which I try not to fault Aeon's End for. The the Technically, the designer did say like, you should keep the sets separate because they're all balanced in terms of how many action, powers, and minions are in the sets. Huh. So when you mix them all up, which was what we do, and you just shuffle them out, you could have a game where you have you know, like 12 minions, and that's going to be very difficult depending on your mages. So the way we, we set up the Nemesis deck, I give it a little more leniency because we're lazy and we don't set it up to be optimal. I also haven't found that I I haven't found the Nemesis set up to be that damaging, considering how luck driven the game is overall. I still feel like the game you know, you know what's kind of coming up in the deck. You know you need to prepare for some minions. You're gonna have to prepare for power, and you're just gonna have to deal with those action cards. So I I, I there have been a couple of times where I've been like, all right, we need to maybe just reshuffle this because we had a bad start or whatever happened. Uh, yeah, I think in the last last game we played, we were up against the... Uh, Hollow Crown. Hollow Crown, yeah, thank you. And we had two really, really brutal... Acolytes? Acolytes out. I know the keywords. Yeah, and they were kind of offset by they would deal damage to themselves when they occurred. And the first card was trigger their stuff, and they don't take damage, and then unleash. And so trigger it twice, and they don't take damage. And so it was, it was like three really brutal effects uh, to start off the game. And it's like, we can just start over. <laughs> See, this is why I have this opinion. That's You're fair. just confirming it. That's fair. No, it, it definitely, yeah. I mean, we could have played it out. We don't know that that ended the game for us. We just decided that it did. The turn order deck can introduce a lot of luck into the game. And there have been a number of times where we're like, okay, if we flip over the nemesis, we lose. But if we flip over a player card, any player card, we win. And then it flips over a nemesis and you're just like, yeah, that almost happened. 
last night. It did. Yeah, it was said. That's a little unsatisfying. Now, I do think that the redeeming quality to Aeon's End is that I still feel like there are things that we could have done better. We could have been more prepared. We could have done, you know, tried a different strategy. Maybe we didn't optimize which gems we were buying. To its credit, I don't feel that it's only because of the turn order deck that we lost. I think there's a lot leading up to that. But in that last round, it, it does feel like, okay, it's only because of the turn order deck. I don't think that's necessarily true. But it clearly has some impact on the game. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. So what did you think about Spirit Island then? I also think there's a lot of luck involved with this game. Because there are a lot of different decks, and there are a lot of things happening. So do you feel like you, that this is something that you can just manage within the game? You're like, listen, you didn't draw the cards you need? Tough luck. Game over. Is that what you're saying? Well, I was more so thinking about the event deck. How punishing that can be sometimes. It really can be, yeah. And I don't know if we're just not leveraging it correctly, or if it's just meant... I mean, it's clearly meant to be punishing. Yeah. I think it's supposed to offset all the new tokens, all the new toys that you get. Uh, in, the, in the second expansion, they, they released a bunch of new tokens and abilities, so it hampers them. And uh, the three different ways, the build, the explore, and the ravage, and it stops... Each one has one that stops the um, stops one of those three things from happening. So I think the events are tr- kind of trying to, to balance it a little bit. I feel like just the events in particular can be just too harsh. I guess so. Now I'm reconsidering my stance. I guess luck isn't that involved. What do you yeah. think? What was your what was your opinion? Actually, mine mine's very similar. Yeah, things can really hinge on the event deck. You can you can plan for all these different things to happen. You know, like you, you know, I think it does a really great job of forcing you to focus for the future while still dealing with the present. Uh, because you have that fast phase, invaders resolve. Then you have the slow phase. So during and and before all that, you set your cards for the round. So you can set these slow cards being like, okay, I think this such and such is going to happen. And then if they do, that's great. The events can occasionally set up things where it's like, okay, yeah, this thing does happen, but you can't do it because the event says you can't do it. Mm -hmm. So good job planning, but also maybe better luck next turn. I do like how some of the events give you options, though, Mm -hmm. because then you can decide how you can mitigate it. Yeah, I don't feel like every event is problematic or it affects the gameplay too heavily mm-hmm. like so they clearly present challenges and i think at, at times it's like okay this is you know, kind of change things up a little bit it's going to change how we, we play but for the most part i feel like you can't really anticipate what, what they're going to be uh, it's hard to, to to factor in that into your plan when you're thinking about what what you should do for the round you know typically i, I feel they're also kind of like tit for tat you know so this thing happens but you get a little something here so maybe it kind of washes out and you're able to deal with it. But then sometimes you're just like, oh, there goes our round. Hopefully uh, <laughs> you know, hopefully it doesn't cascade into, uh, into the end of the game. Yeah, it kind of balances out sometimes with the fear cards. You earn the fear cards by playing. And, you know, typically when you're, when you're earning fear, uh, at least if you're earning fear at a, at a high rate, you're not controlling the invaders. Totally, there's that. There's already that trade-off. Are you getting more fear, or are you dealing with the invaders? Now you get some fear for destroying invaders, but that's not always the easiest thing to do. It's usually, all. it's usually not. So I feel like there's already that trade-off. At really high difficulties, I can't imagine enjoying the event deck that much. I also get really frustrated when we <laughs> we seem to pull the same events time we <laughs> shuffle it pretty well we do I'm like why why do we keep getting these events because it's a good stack uh, 80 cards at least but anyway that's that's an aside uh yeah i can't imagine playing at, at a really high difficulty like the highest difficulty and still competing with these events now do you think there's any other element in the the game that allows for luck so i mean there's the spell decks you know those are just a big deck and you're drawing four from the top but i feel like i feel like that that's managed well you, know, you draw four cards when you gain a new power. Sorry, spells. They're powers. Oh. I'm getting my Aeons in and, and Spared Island. I was giving him a funny mixed look. Up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you have your major minor powers. And I think like, just pulling four and choosing the best, I, I find that's fine. Uh, I think you're really able to, to manage the randomness of the deck well, and I don't think it factors too heavily into the luck or the outcome. It presents you with options to manage it. I also really like, uh, we'll talk about this later, but I, I, I like the, how the different spells kind of 
change and represent your spirit. Powers? Ah, powers. <laughs> yeah. The spirits are casting spells. Oh, man. <laughs> maybe Thunderspeaker is. <laughs> yeah. Anything else you want to say about this? No, I can reveal my score, though. Okay, what was your score? For Aeon's End, I put three. Okay. Because that turn order deck, man. Yeah, really. And then I was going to say three for Spirit Island, too, but I mm-hmm. think it's not as important as I had originally thought, so now I'm giving it a four. Okay. I put them both at four. Oh, okay. I mean, like the turn order deck, like I said, the turn order deck is clearly a spot of luck place where so you're either going to win or lose by by the turnover deck at some point but you've made so many choices leading up to that that i can't say it's only because of this 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 one shuffle in the turn certainly it does have some effect mm-hmm. and just i i feel the events have, have the same effect in spirit island you know I, I like what they both represent in the game and i like how they they're integrated into the game but they're they certainly present a, a aspect of luck what about the extra credit <laughs> yeah, extra credit. So right now we're sitting at, I have Aeon's End at 13 and Spirit Island at 14 out of 15. I have Aeon's End 12 and Spirit Island 14. Okay. So mine's 12 and 14, yours is 13, 14. All right, well, let's see if Aeon's End can't make up some ground. Okay, so what about artwork? For the artwork scale, I do want to mention we have, it's not, we're not art critics. We're not judging whether or not the artist did a good job. It's more of, does the artwork enhance the game, uh, the gameplay or not? I really like the artwork in both. I actually thought, I remember that when the first, we played the first edition of Aeon's End, everything was very heavy metal, down to like the names of the cards, <laughs> and the style, the art style was all just, it really contributed to this kind of heavy metal death and destruction and futurism, futuristic you know, apocalypse, and like I could just... I could hear this Aeon's End heavy metal band in the background while we were playing. <laughs> you know, playing like, Terminate! And Destruction Claws! Or the cards had this really like streaky kind of lightning going down them. And <laughs> the artwork, uh, they softened it up a little bit on that end, but the artwork, I think, still really remains uh, strong. Oh, yeah. It's really great. Mm-hmm. With the mages, I love how certain characters have been brought back but aged. Yes. And it's so cool to see how they've changed and how their stories have progressed. Although mm-hmm. I admit I don't read the back of the cards as often as I should. But it's really cool. Let's talk about the nameless. Holy crap, are they scary. <laughs> yeah, they do a good job. They did a good job with the, the art on the nameless. And they all uh, look unique. They all... Give um, you nightmares. They all give you nightmares. <laughs> They're pretty, there's some pretty creepy ones. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the card art uh, for... Now, the, the gems, I think, are an exception. Like, the gems are... They're gems. Right? They did a good job making them all varied, but I can't think of any that are super interesting. The most recent gem cards have been better. They've, like, incorporated the gems into, like, a little picture instead of just having the gem. Have you noticed really? that? Yeah. Uh, I haven't. Yeah. Take a look. I'll have to take a look. But uh, the spells, you know, the spells and the... The relics, the art, and those are really, really cool and really brings you into it. Uh, we were playing with the the manifold cube, something like that. Oh yeah, yeah I was this, just this staring cool. at that. Yeah, <laughs> just being like, this doesn't make Optical sense. This can't work. Yeah. Who drew this? <laughs> Who drew this? Yeah, it was cool. Uh, so I like the artwork in that one, and I think it really, uh, I think it helps the game. Yeah, and it it just works with it. You feel like you're in it. You're in the apocalypse. So I gave it a point. Point? Uh, I did give it six, uh, two-thirds of a point. <gasps> yeah, yeah. Gasp. I know. It, I mean, it's it's cool, but it doesn't pull me into the game. I don't feel like I am playing this mage, or I don't feel like everything... I don't feel like the artwork totally pulls you into it. Like, the breach, when you open the breaches, there's this yellow circle. You know, like, okay, I guess that's... I guess that represents a thing that's happening. And all the gems are like, oh, this is a gem. This is another gem that gives you more ether. Cool. What happened to your heavy metal like vibe that you were just talking about? If they kept that, I might have kept it at, oh. at a whole point. You just need a more hardcore like <laughs> breach. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so theme. Some lightning coming out. Some lightning coming out, yeah. A theme. I, I might have bled a little bit between artwork and theme. 
in my, my grading. But, eh. Oh, so Spirit Island, I guess, for the artwork for Spirit Island, right. I guess we'll talk about Spirit Island next. I was wondering about that. Yeah, I guess we'll talk about it. Bro. Oh. <laughs> Spirit Island. I know. It's pretty great. It's really good. Every aspect of the artwork is incredible. It pulls you into the theme, pulls you into the, the game. Like, you can totally see your spirit, like your ocean spirit, pulling waves, like sending the waves out into the beach and pulling the, the cities down. And... Isn't that theme, though? I know. It's hard. Well, it's hard. It's hard <laughs> to say. Just think about the art, Mike. I am thinking about the art. There's art in the cars doing that. Okay, so I look at the cards, and I am constantly... The power cards, to be specific. Um, I am constantly... Not the spell cards. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm constantly looking at those and thinking, holy crap, that's the perfect title, and it perfectly... It just perfectly meshes together, and it's just so... I mean, this might get into theme, I know. too. <laughs> Now that we're talking about it, I find it... I, I knew I had distinctions when I was thinking about it. The artwork and the title just really match what you're doing in the card. Yeah. Agree. Yeah. Yeah, the, the artwork's very evocative of what's happening. Even just, like, the backgrounds of the boards and the way that they're... The boards are uh, are laid out, especially for, like, the uh, one of the promo ones, the snake, the world serpent, and, it, like, it kind of snakes... And an X through that through its board where you're removing you're removing presence from the board. You're doing a very mechanical part of the game, but even on the board, like there's some art that kind of just they didn't have to do it like that, but it totally enhances the game the way that they laid that out. Yeah, so I gave that a whole point. Same, I gave Spirit Island a whole point. Well, what okay. about what about theme? <laughs> if we haven't already talked about that, but yeah, uh, first for Aeon's End, the theme. There are times when I'm really into it, like yes, casting these spells. At this nemesis who's doing these weird things that no other nemesis does, and your your mage is you know, this relic hunter, and everything revolves around the relics, and that's great because your uh, your opponent's or your opponent, one of your allies is playing a mage that uses the power of the nameless has gone too far to the dark side. He manipulates things. He does very strong effects, but he has some. Like he'll deal a point of damage to a player on top of doing the good stuff. Uh, just all the mages have their own feel to their, their gameplay. I kind of mentioned earlier, I don't like the breach thing. I get it. It's it's a thematic part of the game. The mages use these breaches, but the game doesn't really pull me into that aspect. It could be anything. But yeah, so there are some things where it doesn't quite pull me totally into it. Yeah, I agree with that. I... I know that breaches exist, and that's how the nameless get into this world. But I mean, we're just really fighting bad guys. That's it. Yeah, you just you just pouring a whole bunch of money into this breach, and then you can use it. But there's no mechanic that ties it into the nameless or anything. It's just more expensive ones will typically have better effects once you open them, and that's fine. It happens. Yeah, they need to choose some. But all the mages are unique. And the nemes nemeses are all unique. So I think they did a really great job with that. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I think they did a great job with the theme. I really like how some of the characters feel. Some of them are very generic in their abilities, but then some of them really shine. The last time we played, I played with Ohat and... Olgamore. Yes. Thank you. And it just really felt like I was this breach mage with Venom attached to him. <laughs> yeah, he has like a symbiotic relationship with this nameless thing. So the lower my life would get, then my symbiote would like <laughs> kick in and he would help me out. And then I would gain some health and then I would be Ohad again. And that felt cool. I like that. That's an especially cool character because in an earlier set, you play you can play as Oldmore. And like Ohat's there, but Olgamore is he's in the driver's seat. Ohat's just like there with a shield, like, oh my god, no one hurt me. And Olgamore, you're playing as Olgamore. And now you're playing as Ohat and Olgamore. They've you know, they've redefined their symbiotic relationship and Ohat's kind of taken control a little more. Things like that with the it has a whole story. So the theme is just really rich in that, that regard. Yeah. Some of some of the stories are like eh, so so, but <laughs> I haven't written I haven't written a legacy game or anything. <laughs> yeah, so it's hard to throw throw the first stone. But yeah, some of the writing is it is it super engaging in their box sets. 
But, I mean, we highly recommend the Legacy game. That was wonderful. Yeah, that was a, a really good Legacy experience. Yeah. If they hired a new writer, that'd be fine. <laughs> We're still gonna buy it either way, I'm sure. Uh, probably. I, I This last set, I said, like, I don't know about this last set. And then they really, uh, it's totally getting off base. But then they, they really, I think they really brought it with the last set. And the next set, I think, is going to be like a Civil War type thing. So it's not too good for, for our wallets. <laughs> anyway, so theme for Spirit Island. How well, how well do you feel that's integrated into the game? Oh, I mean, we've mentioned this a little bit, how you really feel like that spirit. With one of the expansion characters, you're a volcano, <laughs> yeah. and you built your power just stacks up, and then you explode. Yeah, I that, like that a lot. That one is like max level theme. Yeah, to, to me, that uh, I just love that so much. Well, you recently played um, the River one, yeah. and you mm-hmm. made a big river, yeah. and then you just tossed an explorer. <laughs> into it and then carried it along your river to the other side right so it's one of the most recent expansion they introduced aspect cards which is ways to change the beginner spirits i guess the easier spirits to play so it just changes it up for people who played a lot of games this this aspect made it so that when you have presence you can move to han kind of along the river it was really cool i enjoyed doing that i think you should have just kicked him out to sea and then well, that's you a whole different, done with him. That's a whole different spirit yeah. that does that. A whole different spirit gobbles invaders into the sea. Wait, are you kidding? I am not kidding. Which one? It is the, the ocean spirit. <laughs> ah. <laughs> I can't I can't remember its name, but the names are all very thematic too. Isn't it like Ocean's Hungry Grass something, something like that? It. Yeah. Wow. That's it. I, that sounds very that sounds right. It's shocking. There are a lot of characters now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of spirits. <laughs> a whole lot of spirit. Yeah, the game has a lot of spirit. <laughs> when we were talking about artwork, I think our enthusiasm for the theme really bled over for Spirit Islands. Yeah. I gave Spirit Island one, and Amazon two thirds. Wow. I gave them both a one. I was Fair just enough. like, great job, guys. I, I guess I'm just, maybe I'm being overly uh, harsh on Aeon's end. I am shocked because you love Aeon's End. I really like Aeon's End. This is not like which game do we like more, which game would I rather play on a Friday night? Because I play them, I play either at a drop of a hat. It's funny because um, I was clearly biased from the beginning. I like Spirit Island better, <laughs> and that's that. Well, there goes our uh, editorial oversight. Yeah. Hey, I mapped it out <laughs> on a rubric, okay? Match your bias out on a rubric. It's fine. I gave it points. I gave it on <laughs> 10 points. I made sure to give them all the pity points in the world. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's get to play Okay, length. yeah, let's wrap this up. Uh, so play length. And this is on a scale of it's too short or too long to it's, you know, baby bear's porridge. It's just right. I don't have too much to say about this. They both feel like when I fi- finish the game, they're both very satisfying feel like I nailed it. I was engaged the entire time. And I always had something to think about, always had something to do. And they both crush it for playing. Oh, I completely agree. They don't get repetitive. I'm always engaged. Yeah. It, it usually feels like we're neck and neck with the, the Nameless or the Invaders. And whenever we win, it feels like it was deserved mm-hmm. and we celebrate. It's definitely a triumph when we win. Yeah, it feels good. Yeah. So, so where does that bring us? Well, I give each one a point for play length, and I yep, same. sounds like you do too. Same. Okay. I don't know where you're at. I know where I'm at because <laughs> I wrote down my notes. Oh, okay. I gave Aeon's End 15 out of 18 points, and Spirit Island 17 out of 18. Hmm. I gave Aeon's End 15 and a third, and Spirit Island... 78. Wow! So yeah, almost a perfect score on our, our our own creative rubric. I figured that this would happen because yeah. we love Spirit Island. We both, I also really like Aeon's End. 
I know you do. We've That's been playing why Aeon's End for like five years. I'm surprised that you didn't rank Aeon's End higher. I just, given the qualities that we're looking at, I couldn't. When you docked it points in certain categories, I think it made sense why you did that. That's so too. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations, Spirit Island! You're the winner! <laughs> Our Eric Roos! <laughs> uh, sorry if we butchered your name, but you're cream. Really yeah. put Aeon's in its place. <laughs> I can't help but, but wonder if maybe playing them uh, neck and neck like that brought out some of the critique when we're looking at the rubric. Particularly for artwork and theme, is it maybe just because in contrast to Spirit Islands, what, what other game has artwork that aligns with the game or a theme that integrates as much as Spirit Island? Right. I don't know. So is it like just the competition for Aeon's End was, was there? I tried not to, but it's hard. It's hard to be like, you know, I want to give it five points or well, in that case, just one point. But Spirit Island is clearly way better. <laughs> it's hard to separate that. And I, I felt the same with avoiding quarterbacking. I really tried to come up with, with some objective reasoning. No, I really enjoyed comparing them in this manner. When we started, I wasn't sure which one I would, I guess, would, would, would end up being the favorite game. Since I really do like Aeon's End. It has a lot going for it. And we bought a lot for it. So if anyone wants everything in Aeon's End, I think you know, we've determined that Spirit Island is better. <laughs> and we have a lot for it now. No, I'm kidding. I'm definitely going to play both. Yeah, they're both really great games. Yeah, I still can't say that Spirit Island is a better game. It just met our qual qualifying factors for its cooperative definition. Yeah, yeah. We were only looking at this main thing. We hope you enjoyed our new segment, and thank you for joining us on our quest for Cardboard.